All right, so Numbers 20 today, Numbers chapter 20. Uh, we have been, we saw last week, last week was a very discouraging lesson as far as the people of Israel are concerned. We saw them rebelling against Moses. Uh, we see them rebelling against God. We saw um, numerous accounts, both from the people, both from the priestly tribe that are coming against Moses. We saw uh, many in Israel perishing and dying. We saw God's judgment upon that nation to uh, have that generation die in the wilderness, that they will not receive the promise of the promised land. That certainly is terrible news for that generation, but that was in response to their rebellion. It was in response to ultimately their rebellion came from their unbelief. And that's something that the New Testament, especially Hebrews, makes clear that it wasn't just their complaining. Their complaining was a byproduct of something else. It wasn't just their rebellion or their wanting to go back to Egypt. That was a byproduct. And it was all a byproduct that Hebrews tells us of their unbelief in God. That they had a promise of God, but they did not mix it with faith to hear the voice of God and faith enough to obey and follow the voice of God into their promise. So it was their hard hearts, it was their unbelief that they could not enter the promised land. So when the spies went into the land, they come back with a bad report. They chose not to believe the good report, but they chose to believe the bad report and say basically... We're done. We're not going to follow God into his promise. So God pronounces judgment upon that generation. Uh, then we saw uh, the priestly tribe rebel against God, and we saw the land open up and swallow uh, whole, you know, all of these people. So we've, that, that was a very discouraging lesson. This lesson is going to be a little better. At least it's more hopeful. Uh, there's still some um, you know, transitional things that we'll look at. But it's a little more hopeful because in this lesson this week, we start seeing some victories. We start seeing some victories. Yes, there's some bumps along the way. And then the next session that we come back in, there'll be even more bumps along the way. But at least we're progressing toward the promised land. And we're seeing something positive today. So today's lesson is entitled Transition, Victories, and Blessing. With a couple of bumps along the way. Uh, but primarily transition, victories, and blessing. So the first part, when we come here to chapter 20, um, we see uh, really four instances that are kind of negative. The first one being the death of Miriam, of course, Moses' sister. And she's given uh, a total of one verse here in uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse number 1. It says, When the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin, in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam's death gets this blurb here in chapter 20. But it's significant because it's symboling this transition. So we're having this transition from the, the generation that came out of Egypt, even its leaders, because what we see here is Moses is a leader, Aaron is a leader, Miriam was a leader. Remember, Miriam was the one right when they crossed the Red Sea to sing her, her song to God and praise. And Miriam has played uh, you know, a role in, in all of this, standing right with Moses. Uh, but we see here her death that marks the beginning of a transition. The second thing we see is leading to an even bigger transition, and that is the exit of Moses himself. Uh, of course, he doesn't die here. Uh, we won't see that until Deuteronomy, but it's the beginning of the end for Moses and Moses' generation because that generation is dying out. So what happens here is um, when we come to uh, Meribah, uh, it resembles what we've seen earlier when Moses speaks to the rock to bring out water. So when here in verse number 2 of chapter 20, in verse number 2 of chapter 20, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled again. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here? Uh, so the people complain again about 
the water about they're going to die here in the wilderness. So Moses and Aaron, they go to the Lord, and the Lord appears to them and speaks to them and tells Moses this in verse number 8. He tells Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you, Aaron, and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. To tell the rock, speak to the rock, that water would come out of it. So you will bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And then it says, And Moses took the staff from the, before the Lord as he commanded him. Now when they go up to the rock, uh, he goes to the people and he says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. So God tells him to take a staff, but then he tells him to speak to the rock that the rock would yield water. So Moses does what he does before, and he strikes the rock with this staff, and he strikes it twice. Well, after he strikes it, water abundantly comes out of the rock. But yet God is angry with Moses. And he says to Moses and to Aaron in verse number 12, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land. You shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and there and through them he showed himself holy. So this is a judgment, just like the generation that would die in the wilderness. God tells Moses and Aaron, the ones who have been intercessors, the ones who have been priests of God, that they too will suffer the same fate as those, that they will not be able to see the promised land. So what we see here in Numbers is God says Aaron rebelled at Meribah. Um, in Numbers 24, we'll see that in just a few moments. A rebellion suggests disobedience, and indeed a careful reading of the story shows that Aaron and Moses did not obey God exactly. Now we have seen how important it is through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers how God demands this perfect obedience. We, we saw that with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We've seen that time and time again. And, you know, the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, God expects his word, his voice, his laws to be followed. And Moses and Aaron did not obey and follow the voice of God. He told them to take the staff and speak to the rock, whereas Moses struck the rock twice. It says, though this may seem as a minor deviation, the leaders of Israel were meant to be scrupulous in their exact obedience to the law and to God's instructions. And, of course, it's reminiscent of Aaron's sons who offered unauthorized fire, did what they were not supposed to do, and their fate came immediately, whereas Moses' fate did not come immediately. Aaron's comes more quickly, but they still suffer the same fate. So after the episode here at Meribah with the rock and Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock, uh, they're making their journey, and they're making their journey up north. Uh, what I want us to do now, I want you to go on the back of this page to our handy-dandy map. Uh, so we have a handy-dandy map. We like maps. So if you notice kind of on the um, left-hand side, we have Mount Hor and we have Kadesh, Barnea. Well, that is where we are at. We are at Kadesh. And the scene we're getting ready to see is where Moses sends messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. There are trade routes all throughout this area, even back in the ancient world. Uh, the major trade routes here is what is known as King's Highway, the King's Highway, uh, which basically brought Egypt and Mesopotamia together. 
so people could travel, so goods could be traded. So you actually see a couple of highways here. Right there, the little triangle where Mount Hor and Kadesh is, you see King's Highway going over uh, to the east, over to Bozra. And then you also see the King's Highway that extends kind of at the bottom of Edom. And this goes all the way up north through these other territories, and then it goes over you know, way toward the east over to Mesopotamia. And it was a vital trade route, uh, you know, connecting not just Egypt, but also Africa up to Mesopotamia. Uh, so what's going to happen here is Moses is sending messengers from Kadesh, because that's where they're at, over to the king of Edom to ask them, hey, can we please walk through your land um, along the king's highway? Because that was certainly the easiest route to take. So in chapter 20, verse number 17, he says, Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or the left until we've passed through your territory. But Edom said, now let me just put in our mind a little refresher. This is Edom. You, you remember who, what, what, who, where did Edom come from? Edom came from Esau. Edom is the descendants of Esau. Well, who was Esau's brother? Jacob. Who are Jacob's sons? Israel. Okay, so what you have here is the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau that were here in Edom. So basically, it's one brother asking another brother, can I walk through your land? And we know the history between Jacob and Esau, and he's like, absolutely not. You can't walk through our land. Uh, but Edom, verse number 18, Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. The people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway, and if we drink water, you know, we'll pay for it. You know, they're, they're offering just to let us walk through your land. In verse 20, Edom, the king of Edom says, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused and to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And they journeyed through Kadesh, and they came to Mount Hor. And here is where we find another tragic story, and that's the death of Aaron. So this is still part of our transition. And we'll, we'll pick back up in our map a little bit. I just want you to see where we're at at the moment. We're right here at Kadesh and, and Mount Hor. We just talked to the king of Edom. So we've seen Miriam's death. We've seen Moses' fate, which he will not be able to lead the people into the promised land. Um, we've seen the refusal of passage from Edom. And now we see the death of Aaron. So as they journey from Kadesh, this is verse number 22 of Numbers 20. As they journey from Kadesh, they came to Mount Hor and said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my commandment at the waters of Meribah. So now God had told Moses that he would not enter or he would not lead the assembly into the land. And now Aaron is told that he will not be able to enter the land because of the rebellion at Meribah. He says, take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. Strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. The priesthood still continues. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. So we're starting off with this transitional period, and we see this is happening, and this is exactly what God said, that one generation is going to die in the wilderness, and that even is going to include its leaders. And then another generation is going to rise up, and they will go into the promised land. So with the death of Aaron, we see, number one, that even though Aaron dies, the priesthood continues. 
So Eleazar, his son, is now uh, the priest, and Aaron is gathered to his ancestors. He's gathered to his people, which means he is now perished and died, and the people weep, uh, weep for Aaron for 30 days. But then after the death of Aaron, you know, we start to see victories. We start to see victories. Uh, the first victory we have here comes in chapter number 21, and that is the Canaanite king of Arab. He lived down in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming, and fought against Israel and took some of them captive. But Israel vowed a vow and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, I will devote their cities to destruction. The Lord heeded the voice and gave over the Canaanites, uh, over their cities to destruction. So that's the first victory, the first small victory that we see over this Canaanite, the king of Arab, also symbolizing the future victories that would take place in Canaan. So this is like a, a first fruits victory before they go into the land of Canaan to possess the land of Canaan. And for this first victory, now we're going to see another episode of judgment. Another episode of judgment. So this one is a familiar one to us as well. And this is the bronze serpent. So we see in verse number 4 of chapter 21, from Mount Seir, they set out to go by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So obviously they can't go through the land of Edom, so they've set out to go south by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient. And they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses. You brought us out of the land of Egypt to die. You know, while we have time, I may go through and find out every place that they made this statement. You brought us out here to die, and exactly how many times uh, that they said this. But that, that seems to be their complaint. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So if there's anything that we can learn from this, is that all throughout human history, we have taken our food seriously. You don't mess with people and their food. When people get hangry, uh, they get hungry and angry, and they start to rebel. So every time they get hungry, they get angry. So Israel is a bunch of hangry people uh, that we find here that God has to deal with. There's no food. There's no water. You know, they're not happy with the quail they get. They're not happy with um, the manna they get. Um, they just cannot be pleased. And you would think after time after time, they complain, God judges them, people die, they repent, they go back, they complain, people die, they repent. You would think they would learn the, the pattern by now, but they don't learn the pattern. So now again, they're complaining about food and water. They're complaining, speaking against God and Moses. So verse number six says in Numbers 21, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So now we have fiery serpents that are biting the people, and many of them are perishing. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Again, you would think they would learn. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Let me stop right there and just make this statement. Moses is the mediator of the people. The mediator between God and the people. So we, how many times have we seen, going all the way back to Exodus 32, when God wanted to eradicate the people, what does Moses do? He stands as intercessor between the people. Uh, even when the people are complaining against him, what does he do? He pleads on their behalf for God to show them mercy. He is an intercessor. You know, and he points to the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we see Moses time after time after time again being the intercessor for the people. And Aaron did the same with Moses. So now we find that Moses here, he, again, he, he prays for the people. And he says to the Lord in verse number 8, And the Lord said to Moses in verse number 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the healing from the bites that the Israelites had came when they simply looked upon this fashioned bronze serpent that was put on a pole and was lifted up before the people. And when they look at the bronze serpent, they are healed and they live. Where do we see the bronze serpent every day? Doctors. That is symbol for doctors and medicine. That does look vaguely familiar, doesn't it? We also see that symbol every day elsewhere. You know where we see that symbol? Jesus in us. So, yeah, we see it in the natural. We also see it in the spiritual. Uh, For this exact reason, story is used in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, 14 and 15, Jesus makes this statement as he's talking to to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus simply says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So the picture is simple. You had fiery serpents attack the people because of their sin. And when the people are bitten, Moses fashioned a serpent, puts it on a pole, lifts it up. When the people gaze upon the serpent on the pole, they are healed and they live. And Jesus says, that's the same thing for me. When I am lifted up, all of humanity who is in their sin and under judgment and death, for the wages of sin is death. Whoever believes in me, looks at me, believes in me, puts their faith in me, he shall have eternal life. He shall be healed of his sin, and he shall live. So we see this picture here in the wilderness that Jesus himself uses for himself. And also, you can even go back to the striking of the rock. Now, one thing that we read, and I think we read this at the end of Leviticus, is there was a spiritual rock that followed Israel in the wilderness. And and Hebrews tells us that that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Uh, So Jesus, the New Testament tells us, was with Israel, and He was that rock. Well, what do we have here in Numbers? We have Moses that is told to speak to the rock, not to strike it, but to speak to it, and water would come out. Well, instead, he strikes the rock, but there would be a rock in the future that was here in the past, Christ, and Christ would be the spiritual rock that he was struck down for us, that he was put on a cross. Isaiah talks about that suffering servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So even with, with Jesus, the living water comes from the rock through his death on the cross. So Jesus was struck like the rock. Jesus is this serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up that the people looked to it and should be healed. So Moses was told not to strike the rock. He was just told to speak to it. But Jesus was struck. But yet through his striking, what happened? Water flows abundantly. Living water that we who who drink from that water would never thirst again. So even along the journey, we see pictures of Jesus in our journeys. Um, to end chapter, uh, well, not to end chapter 21, but the next uh, chapter 21, the people set out and uh, they sing the songs at the, at the well where they've gathered water. But I want to go down to verse number 21 of chapter 21. Numbers 21, 21. We see another victory for Israel. This time, uh, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, Israel sent messengers to the king of the Amorites. 
He says, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or the vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway. So asking the same request. But Sihon, verse 23, would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. But verse 24 says, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to Jabbok as far as to the Amorites. So we see, again, asking to pass through the land. They said no, brought an army against them. Israel prevails against this king. Then in verse 31, we see that they lived in the land of the Amorites, but they came and they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them to battle the people. But God said to Moses, verse 34, Do not fear, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him what you did to Sion, king of the Amorites. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. So we've seen three battles so far in verse number 21 against the Canaanite king of Arad, uh, against here the king of the uh, Amorite, Sihon, and then against Og, the king of Bashan. So if you go back to our map, go back to the map on the back of the page, we will see the journeyings. All right, so at Kadesh and at Mount Hor, that is where Aaron died. And then they went, the Bible says, down by the way of the Red Sea that led them down to the Red Sea. And then they made a turn and they came up north around Edom because they did not go through Edom. They could have just walked the king's highway right through, but he did not let them. So they come up by the way of the wilderness and you see they go north um, and they go around Moab and then they go up and that is where King Sihon is and that's where they defeated him. And then they went further up north near the Sea of Galilee on the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee into Bashan, that is where King Og is, and they defeated him. So they take those territories, and then they make their track back down south to the plains of Moab. And right there where that white dot is, that's at the plains of Moab. That is right there at the, across from Jericho. And so now we're going to settle here in the plains of Moab for a little bit. In our next session, when we come back, we'll be settled uh, in the plains of Moab there right there at the, at the heart of Moab where King Balak is. And King Balak is going to be our next um, person that we come in contact with here in Numbers chapter 22. So you see in Numbers chapter 20, we see Miriam dying. We see Moses striking the rock, getting judgment. Edom refuses passage. Aaron dies. Then in chapter 21, we begin to see victories. We see Arad destroyed. We have a short hiccup here with the fiery serpents, but Moses intercedes. God uh, provides for the people. And then we see two victories here against King Sihon and against King Og. And now we've settled in the plains of Moab right here with King Balak. So now we go into chapter 22. In chapter 22 and 23 and 24 consists of this story of king it's it's amazing that this is given you know three full chapters uh here we've seen other significant events get a few verses but we get three whole chapters here of the king of moab king balak is going to hire a prophet to curse israel okay if you can't beat them militarily, now we're going to try to beat them spiritually. So if Balak hires a prophet to curse Israel, then he can defeat them by cursing them. And this prophet for hire is, of course, a man named Balaam. And all of us that know, grew up in church and went to Bible Sunday school and vacation Bible school, we probably learned about Balaam and his talking donkey. Uh, so this is a very interesting story, uh, partly humorous, um, but partly important to not just 
what's happening there, but to the overall narrative of what's going on here from Abraham all the way up to Jesus. Balaam, is, and through what God does to Balaam, is going to reassure us and reassure Israel of God's promises. All right, so 22, 23, and 24 deal. We're here at the plains of Moab, and we have this story here of the king of Moab. So chapter 22, verse number 1 says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick us, lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of of Amal, and said to him, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he who you bless is blessed, and he who you curse is cursed. So again, Balak is afraid. All the people are in fear. They've seen what Israel has already done on their journeyings. So he's going to call this prophet Balaam, who was very famous in the Middle East of his day. He lived at Pethor in Syria, 400 miles north of Moab. So this wasn't somebody that was close by. This was a guy you know, they had to travel quite a distance to get to and talk to him and convince him to come back. So 400 miles north of Moab is where Balaam lived. So when Balak, the king of Moab, saw the Israelites in the plains of Moab just to the east of the Dead Sea, he sent for Balaam, hoping that through Balaam's cursing that Israel would be destroyed. Um, so it's interesting First of all, we see interesting language here when Balak sends for Balaam and he says, I know that he who you bless is blessed and who you curse is cursed. Now that may have been true. Obviously he had a reputation or else Balak wouldn't have called on him. So obviously he had a reputation of this. But there is one higher than Balaam. And the one higher than Balaam is Yahweh himself. And God has already made promise and covenant to Abraham that I will bless you, I will curse your enemies. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. So whose blessing and cursing is stronger? Is it going to be Yahweh's blessing and cursing? Or is Balaam's blessing and cursing stronger? Well, I think we know the answer, but we're going to find out. So anyway, the elders go from Moab and they go up to where Balaam is and... At first, Balaam is not convinced. He goes and asks, inquires of the Lord, and the answer is no, I will not go back. So then, in verse 15, once again, Balak sends princes more number and more honorable. So now he sends a, a people who are of more higher standard to go and convince Balaam to, to come back. And, and Balaam even says to the servants, though Balak... Uh, Balak were to give me his house full of gold and silver. I cannot go beyond the command of the Lord. Uh, so, and it's, it's inferred there, and it's more inferred because of other places that, that Balaam is, is that he was truly a prophet for hire. And maybe the first time the price wasn't high enough. Uh, but now he even hints, hey, you know, if there was a house full of silver and gold, uh, I, I still don't know if I could go. You know, trying to obviously play this game. But then he does inquire to the Lord in verse 20 of chapter 22. It says, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Only do what I tell you. Um, 
Before we go any further, look on the, the, the back of your page. And this kind of gives us an outline of what's happening here. So the outline, first of all, is the introduction where Balak calls for Balaam. And then the first encounter with God is where God says, you shall not go with them. So he goes to the first set of servants and he says, I'm not coming. Then the second set of servants come back who are princes, who are more honorable, in verses 15 through 20. In Balaam's second encounter with God, God says, you shall go, but do only what I tell you to do. So that's what we just read in chapter 22, verse 20. If these men have come to call you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. And then we're immediately told in verse number 22, But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And verse 23, and here's where things start to get weird, okay? Everything's pretty normal. Here's where things start to get a little, little unusual, a little weird, okay? But hey, it's not beyond God. If he can speak out of a burning bush, he can certainly speak out of a donkey. So now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, Balaam doesn't see this. He's the prophet, but he's not permitted to see this. But the donkey is permitted to see this. So he sees an angel standing in the road with a sword drawn, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey. Because Balaam doesn't know what's going on. He thinks the donkey's just going crazy. So he strikes the donkey to turn her back on the road, to try to get the donkey back on the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path at the vineyards, or between the vineyards, with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So now the donkey's gone off to the side and has ran into the wall. So he strikes the donkey again to get the donkey back and going. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place. So this is the third area where the angel of the Lord is standing. And at this place, there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled and struck the donkey with his staff. Now, to Balaam's defense, he doesn't know any of this is going on. To Balaam's defense, he's just riding a donkey south 400 miles. You know, this is a long journey. And this donkey has started going crazy. Well, if the car starts sputtering and, and knocking out right when you leave the house, you know, you're like, this is not going to be a good trip. So he's trying to get the donkey back right. But then we see that the donkey is seeing things that Balaam doesn't see. And he's seeing the angel of the Lord, and it is scaring the donkey that's causing him to react this way. And then in verse 28... The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So he allowed the donkey to talk. He opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, <laughs> I love this, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? So the first thing, so if your animals could talk to you, the first thing would say is, why do you treat me so bad like this? Probably not you guys' dog, but why are you doing this to me? So that's what the donkey says. You know, why are you treating me this way? What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And if that wasn't weird enough, now Balaam's going to talk back to the donkey. Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I'd sworn, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. I wonder if, I wonder if, if at this moment when he said that, did, he, did it click in his mind? I'm literally talking to a donkey right now. <laughs> and the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not now he's going to make him feel guilty? Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden your life long, all your life long to this day? He's like, man, we, we've been together forever. Why are you treating me this way? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. So then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why 
The angel says, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Uh, because you hid my eyes so I couldn't see you standing there. That's why I struck him three times. This is, it, it's an odd conversation. You know, we find these oddities all throughout Scripture. It's like if the angel would have just appeared, you could have had this Apostle Paul moment, you know, where Balaam falls off his donkey and he says, oh, Lord, I'll do everything you say. But no, we have a donkey that sees the angel of the Lord. Balaam doesn't. The donkey's going all over the road, and he's trying to get him back on the road. And then both the angel and the donkey turn on Balaam and be like, why are you doing this? Uh, there are some things that are just unusual here in Scripture. I mean, it's right there. Uh, so the angel, the first thing he says to him is, why are you treating the donkey like this? And uh, he, then he says, behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. And the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Here's why I think, all joking aside, here's why I think we have this weird story right in the midst of a talking donkey, seeing the angel of the Lord, Balaam doesn't, and then the donkey turns around and says, why are you treating me this way? And the angel says, why are you treating him this way? Here's why. Obviously, Balaam is a prophet for hire. Obviously, he has a reputation as a seer, as a prophet. But there are some things, well, let me back up. As a prophet that he sees himself as, God is showing himself as greater than Balaam. So just to make sure that Balaam isn't going to take the money to go down and do what Balak says, God is going to show him, you think you're the prophet, but I'm the one who controls what you see. Your donkey was able to see the angel of the Lord, and you, the great prophet, were not able to see the angel of the Lord. Your donkey could see it, your beast of burden, this lowly donkey, he was able to see spiritually what you could not because I hid it from you, showing that God is greater than Balaam. And Balaam, it would be in his best interest to listen to the voice of Yahweh. So this comical, unusual story here of this conversation between Balaam and a donkey and Balaam and the Lord was ultimately to show Balaam he isn't the one in charge. He isn't the one who gets to bless and curse. There's one greater. And if he thinks he's a great prophet, God can reveal to a donkey more than he can reveal to Balaam. So it's all to get Balaam to follow what God says, because God already told him, do only what I tell you. Don't try to do this on your own to please this king. He said, because I could have easily just killed you and let the donkey live. Then Balaam said to the Lord, verse 34, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said, no, go with the men. But again, but speak only the word I tell you to speak. So he finally gets to Balak, meets him in the city of Moab. And Balak says to Balaam, did I, uh, did I not sin to call you? Why have you not come to me? You know, basically, why, aren't you, why, why weren't you already here? Um, Balak, Balaam says to Balak, verse 38, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And Balak's probably like, yeah, okay, whatever. You're here to do a job to curse Israel. And, and Balaam, at first it might have sounded good. Yes, I'm here to say what God says. But now, now Balaam's like, no, really, I'm here to say what God says, <laughs> you know, because you didn't just have a donkey talk to you in the way, seeing visions that I was not able to see. So he says, no, seriously, I'm only here to say what God says. So now we have oracles. We have oracles in chapter 23 and 24. So Balak takes him to the first place, which is Bamoth Baal, and he takes him to the first place, and they build altars, and they have rams, and they make sacrifices, and all of that. 
So now Balaam gives his first oracle, which takes place in chapter 23, beginning in verse number 7. And we're not going to take time to read through all of these, but there are a few key statements. Um, the first key statement in the first oracle is, how can I curse who God has not cursed? And that comes from verse number 8. So Numbers 23.8, Balaam says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce who the Lord has not denounced? In verse 10, he says, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? And then in verse 11, Balak says to Balaam, What have you done to me? This isn't the agreement. This isn't the plan. So then he takes him to another place. Of course, Balaam also says, you know, I must not take care to speak. I have to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth. So then he takes him to another place, the field of Zophim. In the field of Zophim, the, the key phrase here is, I received a command to bless and I cannot revoke it. That comes from verse number 20. So this is the second oracle. Chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld the misfortune of Jacob, nor seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So the second thing he says. And then Balak says to Balaam, do not curse them at all, and do not bless them at all. He's like, just stop. He's like, don't bless them, don't curse them, just stop. <laughs> Let's just stop. Balaam answered, did I not tell you I must do what the Lord says? And Balak says, okay, let's go to a third location. So he said, maybe if we do it from here, you know, we'll get a different result. So he goes to the top of Peor that overlooks the desert, takes him to the highest point, and they build an altar there. And here they again, in chapter 24, we notice in verse number 3, Balaam lifted up his eyes and he saw Israel camping out in the wilderness or out on the plains. And the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And again, Balaam gives a third discourse. And a key phrase in here. And this discourse is how, verse number 5 of chapter 24, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar in gardens beside a river. Uh, you know, verse 8, God brings them out of Egypt and, he is, and is for him like horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations of his adversaries. He will break their bones into pieces, pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, like lioness who will rouse him up. Then he ends, Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And of course, that is the same wording from the Abrahamic covenant. Blessed are those who bless you, cursed are they, are they who curse you. So again, pronouncing the blessing. So three times he's pronounced a blessing over Israel. Now, Balak is really angry. He's really angry. He says in verse number 10, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them three times. And Balak again responds, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord. And then before Balaam leaves, he says this in verse 14, Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So now he's giving a final oracle here which the key phrase here is a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter from Israel. Verse number 17 of chapter 24, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It'll crush the forehead of Moab. Edom will be disposed Verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And then he looked upon Amalek, says the same thing. He looked upon Kenite, says the same thing. 
And thus, he says, this one who arises will utterly destroy all of his enemies. So we have three oracles blessing Israel. And then this last one that puts it in the context of there's one that shall arise out of Israel with a scepter. There's one that shall come out of Jacob. Now, this can be interpreted a couple of ways. It can be interpreted first naturally, as in what would happen in the near future when Israel would overtake the promised land and defeat and drive out the enemies of Canaan and take possession of the land, that they would, in fact, have ultimate victory over all of these nations. And it even looks further down the road to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who he sees, but he doesn't see him now. He is beholding him, but he is not near. The star that shall come out of Jacob and the scepter out of Israel is ultimately Jesus himself that wouldn't just have dominion over just these physical nations, but he takes spiritual dominion over all. And that he defeats all of not our natural enemies, but he defeats our spiritual enemies. Through the cross, he makes an open show out of principalities and powers, putting them to shame. For this reason, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Through Jesus' work on the cross, he, he puts down sin and, and death. Through his resurrection, he takes the place of the right hand of the Father and he reigns over all of his enemies till his enemies become his footstool. Jesus, the one that says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus the one who, who brings a kingdom that, that Daniel saw that, that, that fills the whole earth and takes authority over the enemies, that brings salvation, that brings righteousness and redemption, the one that reigns. He ultimately sees Jesus, who is above all, who defeats all of our enemies, not natural, militarily, but spiritually as well, and rules and reigns over us in His eternal kingdom. So Balaam was called upon to curse Israel. He ends up blessing Israel three times and then gives this prophecy of an ultimate dominion of this one that comes out of Israel. So this is, again, continue to be an up and down journey. We've seen the transition. We're seeing it transition slowly from one generation to another, one leadership to another. Uh, but yet in the midst of this, even in the midst of rebellion and people complaining and they don't have any water and We've seen God begin to give victories. And ultimately, not just do we see these victories leading them up to the promised land, but we see the blessing that is pronounced upon them. Again, showing us that nothing is going to stop the covenant. Nothing's going to stop the covenant. God is faithful to His Word, and what He has promised, He will perform.